0: Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning because of Jesus. Jesus, you, in your incarnation, reveal to us God's nature. You show us that you are the sovereign authority over all things, all creation, and you show us that you are also a merciful Savior, and that you care about us In a very particular way, you care about our souls, you provide for us what we need, what would be impossible apart from your grace, you grant us forgiveness, and you care about our physical needs as well, as we see in the text this morning in Mark 2, you even chose to display your authority by expressing mercy, the mercy of healing a man. And Lord, we pray that that mercy would abound in everyone's life here in our church, that's a part of our church. We pray that as we go through physical trials, we pray that your mercy would reign and it would declare your authority. We pray that your authority would be be magnified through your mercy. We pray that for Andy this morning. We pray that for all of the church family that suffer right now currently through physical problems. We pray, God, your sustaining power would also declare your sovereign power. We pray that you would grant faith to believe that this morning, that you would remove doubt, that you would strengthen hearts and minds as we look to Christ who understood our needs and cared. He knew pain He saw suffering, and He even experienced it for us so that He could be our sympathetic, sovereign High Priest. We thank You, Jesus, for that. Holy Spirit, we thank You for showing us that. And God, we thank You for revealing we can experience Your your sovereign mercy through Your irresistible grace that drew us to forgiveness. We thank You. Father, Son and Holy Spirit today. I thank you that we can pray now in Jesus name because of the great sovereign mercy you've shown to us today. Amen. Today we will we will be looking at how Jesus revealed the impossible. Today we'll see that the impossible is made possible through Jesus in Mark chapter 2, primarily verses 6 through 12, but we will read Verses 1 through 12 to get the context this morning. So please turn with me in God's Word to Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. And here is the Word of the Lord. Listen and rejoice. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And let me submit to you this morning, we haven't ever seen anything like this done by a mere man. We haven't seen sovereign authority and omnipotent mercy combined in one person, except in Jesus. And that's what we see here. We see Jesus doing what is impossible for a mere man, but is possible only for God. He is forgiving sins. What I love about this text is he does it with mercy. He expressed his authority through his mercy. He could have done this a multiple uh, in multiple ways, he could have done it through all kinds of ways. He, he simply could have done it just by saying to the man, you're forgiven, and, and then leave it at that. But instead, he actually chose to show mercy by bringing a paralytic to him for forgiveness and then raising him up to walk. And that's what he does for us when he saves us spiritually. He brings those who are immovable by his irresistible grace Those who are crippled by sin. He brings us to Himself and He commands that we rise up and walk in newness of life because He has forgiven us. And that's good news. Mark is about revealing the good news that is found in Jesus. The heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel of Mark, and every gospel account is that the good news comes to us by God Himself. God Himself declares that our sins can be forgiven by His grace through faith in Jesus. The gospel tells us that guilty people can be forgiven and accepted by God and that there is nothing more important in this life than this. This is all that we really and truly need as humans, is it not? It's something we need in life, and it's something we certainly need after our bodies die. We need forgiveness. We don't just need temporal things, for instance, like healing. I mean, what a pleasant surprise this man had when he was lowered down before Jesus, thinking he's coming to get his legs restored back to him, and then he finds out his sins have been forgiven. That's a good surprise, is it not? Jesus addressed the most necessary need in the man's life first. But isn't it good to see that Jesus didn't neglect his other needs either? But he addresses the primary need first, and that's good to know. Because Jesus knows what we truly need. We, we don't need what we think we need sometimes. We, we don't need, necessarily in this life, better relationships. We don't necessarily need financial security. We don't necessarily need physical healing though all of these things are good and all of these things can be granted to us by God and are granted to us by His grace. What we need as humans, what we need as sinners, is much greater than these things, these temporal things. We need something eternal. We need God's eternal declaration that we have been forgiven. We need His forgiveness. What we need most of all, though, ironically comes to us from the one that we've offended most of all. And so that tells us that we cannot even obtain what we need most on our own. It is impossible for man to find forgiveness through anything that he does. His religion won't save him. His lineage won't save him. His works won't save him. Because they're all corrupted by sin. We're all paralyzed by our sin, like the man in the story. But like the man in the story, we have hope in Jesus. In verse 5, you can see that Jesus gives him hope by forgiving him of his sins. Jesus reveals that he can give us what we need most, which is his forgiveness. That's good news. We don't earn it. This man didn't earn it. This man didn't even carry himself to Jesus. He was brought there by God's grace through the faith of his friends. But there, on that roof, he received what he needed most he received forgiveness. In Mark 2, 6-12, through 12, this morning, we're going to see that Jesus reveals what is impossible through what he does himself, which is possible because he is God. Jesus reveals that what is impossible for man is possible for him. Let me give you an outline of this. Jesus does this He reveals this through, number one, an unbelievable question that reveals religious inability. And number two, Jesus does this through an unmistakable revelation that reveals his authority and his mercy. And thirdly, Jesus does this through an unrepentant reaction that reveals man's depravity. That one was kind of a shocker for me as I studied this text. I think it will be an eye-opener. In Mark 2, 6-7, we hear an unbelievable question. We hear the scribes ask an unbelievable question that they thought was hidden. They thought it was hidden in their hearts. Look with me at the text. It says, now, after Jesus forgives this man, it says this, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This was something that was going on in their soul, in their mind, in their heart. No one heard this except Jesus, which reveals something about who He is to us and to them. But Jesus uses this unbelievable question to display religious inability. These men were well-versed in Old Testament Scripture. These men were scribes. They were teachers of the law, but it could not save them. I heard Charles... I heard... uh, I wish I heard Charles Spurgeon. I read Charles Spurgeon as he wrote about preachers, and he wrote this. He said something along these lines. He said that, God never saved anyone for being a preacher. God never saves anyone for being religious or even a teacher of his law. These men were religious, but they didn't have faith. They didn't have the forgiveness that the man had received that came down from the roof. The the scribes that are listed here were sent here by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were were non-priests, so you understand this. They were lay people. And they were devoted to keeping the people of Israel loyal to the Old Testament law. And the way they did that was they they applied some new traditions. They, They thought that they could give more traditions to protect the law, but instead they ended up superseding the law and drawing men after them and their teachers rather than after God and His revelation. And the teachers that they put forth were the scribes. Understand this, the scribes were the theologians of the Pharisees. They were the guys who knew everything. But knowledge without faith produces nothing. Their knowledge didn't save them. Scribes show us that it takes more than head knowledge to be a child of God. Faith is required. Saving faith or belief in God's Word has to be present with His Word. It's not enough to have intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is. It's not enough to have a belief that Jesus is actually an historic person. You must trust in that historic Jesus, who He is, His nature, His attributes, His work, His life, His resurrection, everything that He did, His death, has to be trusted in completely. Not just the historical facts about Him, there has to be reliance upon Him. And that reliance comes as a result of God's gift to us, which is faith. And that's a gift that only God can give to us. Religion cannot grant saving faith. You can be well-versed in Reformed theology and not be a Christian. You can be a staunch Calvinist and not be a Christian. You can be a rank Arminian and not be a Christian. You You can be very religious and know every argument and be a great apologist and not be saved unless God grants you what you need most, which is His forgiveness. That opens your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus who died on the cross. Paying your penalty. Living your life righteously. Rising victoriously to display he was the sovereign authority who had great, great mercy toward those who need him most. Religion can't grant that. Only a revelation by God's grace can grant that. Look with me at Romans 3 to see this. Romans 3.20 Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Well, there's knowledge. It just shows you that you're guilty. But the knowledge of the sin cannot save you. Faith is required. And faith, we know according to Ephesians 2.8 and 9, is a gift from God. But it says, But now, Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith, through trust, belief, reliance in Jesus, the Messiah. means trusting Him for who He is and what He has done. He came as the anointed one of God, God of very God, God the Son into this world, incarnated Himself to become a servant, to live our life, fulfilling all of God's requirements that we could never fulfill. And then that anointed one went and paid the price that we all should have paid ourselves. He paid our sin debt and God was satisfied with His sacrifice. Faith in that Faith in who He is and what He has done is what saves. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. It means to be declared right in God's sight. They are justified by His gift, His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus through the... (laughs) appeasement offering that he offered up for us the full payment for our sins we are declared by God's grace to be just as if we'd never sinned God it says in verse 25 put forward this Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith by trust reliance but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Religion doesn't save. God saves. God saves by granting us forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. The only one who could pay our debt. The only one who could live our life and fulfill all that God required of us and then be able to satisfy God's wrath for us on the cross. Just imagine in that that short amount of time on the cross, Jesus fills up an eternity of wrath that we'd be poured out on you in hell for eternity. He satisfies it right there on the cross because He is God in human flesh, able to absorb all of the wrath that was stored up for all of those He would die for. He receives that. He does that so that we can be forgiven. Our guilt can be removed forever. He satisfied God's requirements for us to grant us forgiveness isn't that amazing that's what this paralytic was experiencing but how did the scribes respond to this great glorious truth pridefully and in unbelief that's how they responded because of their religious inability if you look back at mark 2 6 and 7 it reveals much about the heart of prideful unbelief Look how they responded as compared to Jesus, to Jesus' authority and His mercy. This this prideful unbelief paralyzed these religious scribes. It paralyzed them. I mean, these men are sitting under Jesus' preaching, the prince of preachers, the king of preachers. And they're paralyzed. They're cold. They're indifferent. They're rebellious in their heart against God and His grace. They have no compassion. They have nothing but religion. And religion traps them. Notice there in verse 6 how they respond as the paralytic is lowered down. Look, what, look where they're at. Just look what's going on here. It says in verse 6, Now some of the scribes were sitting there. They were sitting there. Wait a minute, I thought that Mark said earlier, this place was so packed out that they couldn't even get the paralytic in. They had to go to the roof and tear the, tear the roof out to lower the man down. But no, the scribes are there and they're sitting in the place of authority. They're sitting in the place of honor. They're sitting on the floor, probably next to Jesus. Yet they're paralyzed by their pride and unbelief. Notice how paralyzed they are. As the man is being lowered down, These religious leaders of Israel who should have been showing God's grace and compassion to those who are in need, they sit still as the man is being lowered. They do not jump up and grab this poor, feeble man and help him to the floor, no. What do they do? They sit and judge Jesus for approaching this man with forgiveness. This tells us a lot about the religious It tells us a lot about religious unbelief. Religious unbelief is marked by pride. Pride can sit under the preaching of God's word, the preaching of Jesus, and still be unresponsive and unrepentant and unbelieving. Pride. Pride can cause you to sit under the preaching of truth. And not be responsive, but paralyzed in your arrogance, paralyzed in your knowledge, because you think that this is undignified to respond to Jesus the way that others responded to him. These men tore a hole in Peter's house. It's not real dignified, but it was really compassionate. It was really Christ-exalting. Yet these men, these judges of Israel, these scribes, they were unresponsive to Jesus' grace and his presence. I hope that's not the case with anyone here this morning. I hope you're not sitting here this morning under the preaching of God's word or every Sunday hearing the preaching of God's word and not being responsive. I hope you're not sitting here paralyzed by pride thinking this sermon is for someone else. Because God will not not bless you if that's the case. He will correct you if you're a believer. Because the scriptures teach us in Isaiah 66, you can turn there with me, Isaiah 66 too, that God only looks to the humble. God looks to the contrite. God looks to those who tremble at Jesus' word, not to those who are prideful in their knowledge, theologically sound, but... Unmoved by the word of Christ. Look what Psalm or Isaiah 66, 2b through 4 says. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Notice this about the religious, what God says here about the religious in Israel in his day, as well as in Jesus' day. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. See, what, what had happened previous to this is God saying, the people who are supposed to be my people come before me, but they don't tremble at my word. They don't humble themselves before me. They offer sacrifices, but I don't accept them because of their heart's condition. They're prideful. So he says their sacrifices are worthless. It's like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. He's speaking about the the future of these Pharisees, these, these scribes, but here he's also speaking about any of us, if we come to his word unmoved, with pride in our hearts. God is not delighting in that. Verse 4 says, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. If, if there's prideful unbelief in your heart, if there's doubt that God's word is applicable to you in any way, you need to repent and cry out for mercy this morning. You need to be contrite and humble and tremble this morning because God is speaking directly to you through His Word this morning. God drew you here this morning to receive a revelation of Jesus so that you can repent and rejoice in His grace and forgiveness. In Mark 2, that's what needed to happen with the scribes. Go back with me to Mark 2. In Mark 2, the scribes were sitting there under the Word, under the Word of God, sitting there listening, but they weren't trembling. They were only questioning They questioned whether or not Jesus was a blasphemer. And the reason they questioned that is because he was actually claiming something that if he wasn't God, he would have been a blasphemer. He was claiming to do what only God could do, which was to forgive sins, to forgive sinners, to remove man's sin guilt. That's what Jesus was claiming. He could remove, he could declare a man to be guiltless. He could send away their sins eternally. Now, only God can do that according to Scripture. Look with me at Micah 7.18 to see that. Micah 7.18, the last chapter of Micah. Micah 7.18 says that only God can forgive sins. Only God can send away our sins. Only God can remove our sin guilt. So this claim that Jesus is making in declaring this man forgiven is really a huge claim and these men are questioning it, not questioning it as in, wow, can he actually forgive sins? This is good news. No, they're, they're questioning it as if they are the greater judge. He can't forgive sins because he is not God. But here it says really clearly that only God can do this. And Jesus did not shy away from this truth. In Micah seven eighteen, it says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression?" for the remnant of His inheritance. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. All of our sins He will cast away. Only God can do this. And we know that God the Son did this When he received our punishment on the cross, when he was paralyzed under our guilt on that cross, willingly submitting himself to God's wrath, he was receiving all of the just penalty for our sin completely so that we could be pardoned. Could you imagine this? I hope you have experienced it. Every sin you have committed in the past presently or in the future has been forgiven no guilt when you see god you will not fear him as if he's going to punish you and get this if you suffer now it's not because he's punishing you either Actually, if you're going through suffering, it's because he's actually loving you enough to wean you from this world, to trust in the one who saved you and forgave you, and to make you look forward to the day that you will be with him forever. You will not be satisfied with this earth if you've received his forgiveness and his grace, and that comes through his work that he accomplished in Jesus, and only God can forgive us because, ultimately, it's only God that we have sinned against, right, if, if I forgive you of a sin that you've committed against me, if you slander me and I forgive you, I'm basically saying I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to accuse you. I'm not going to take and, and act on that against you. I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm going to forget it. I'm going to move on. But guess what I can't do? I can't remove your guilt for slandering me. Only God can do that because you have offended him. I can resolve not to hold these things against you, but only God can remove the guilt that is against you. Only God can declare you righteous. And He does that through the sending forth of His Son to take your place. Jesus becomes your sin offering. Your guilt is laid upon Him, and His righteousness is imputed or credited to you so that you could be forgiven. And only God can make that transaction happen. We can't do anything in and of ourselves to make that happen. God has to draw us there. God has to do the work. God has to actually open our eyes to see it. And isn't it good that He does that? I mean, Scripture is clear. We are spiritually incapable of coming to God on our own. Read Ephesians chapter 2. God brought you to see the glory of Jesus if you see Him today. God brought you to the point of seeing your sin as an offense against Him, and your only hope was His Son. That's a work of God. You rejoice in that if you see that this morning. When Jesus makes this claim in Mark 2.5, when he claims that he can forgive sins, he is, he's, he's making a big claim here, one that would possibly get him in a lot of trouble if he was a mere man. He claims by saying he can forgive sins that he is God, and that's what the scribes understood. He was either God or he's a blasphemer. He can either forgive sins, and that means he is God, or he cannot forgive sins, and he is a liar. Now, when this happens, understand this. When this thought process is going on, these unbelievable questions are happening in the hearts of these scribes. This is all part of Jesus' plan. He has them right where he wants them. These arrogant religious people, who trusted in their rituals and their traditions were now being confronted by the king of kings and he was going to he was going to astound them by his revelation they're right he either was god and able to forgive or he is a liar or a lunatic and cannot do this is he liar or lord he's going to hold them there and he's going to hold them there in a very specific way and he's going to hold them guilty once he reveals this to them, unless they repent and believe in him. In Mark two, eight through twelve, we hear Jesus' response to these questions in their hearts. We hear, secondly, an unmistakable revelation of who Jesus is and what he can do in this passage, eight through twelve. I think in eight it's very amazing to me what he does here. He he reveals his authority by revealing what's in their hearts personally. Look what it says. In 2:8 And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves said to them, "Why do you question these things in your hearts?" He's perceiving. He's perceiving something in his spirit. Something that they were questioning within themselves in their own hearts. They were having this internal dialogue in their minds. And Jesus is actually penetrating this. He's actually, as these men are sitting there arrogantly looking at him, he's actually reading their minds. Oh, and trust me, they knew it when he said this. I mean, what a shocker to the judgmental. They're being judged by the one that they're accusing. And they're being judged rightly Oh, He he made this very clear to them that He knew what was going on inside of them. He is revealing to them personally His ability to express His deity. I mean, can any of you tell what I'm thinking this morning? Can you think about what somebody sitting beside you is thinking? You don't know what's going on in the heart. But Jesus did. He's revealing to them personally that He can do only what God can do. Isn't that amazing? I mean... He goes through this section just condemning them and revealing to them over and over again that He is God, a very God. He does not hear from the beginning saying, I know what's in your heads. You religious, arrogant, prideful, unbelieving people. I know what's going on. Why do you do this? Why are you having this dialogue in your heart? I want to know. Give me a reason. The reason is they are incapable of believing unless he forgives them of their sins like the man who was let down. But yet he reveals to them clearly that he is God here by reading their minds. First Kings 8.39 says, For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, speaking of God. First Chronicles 29.9 says, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And listen, the scribes knew those verses. The scribes knew that. The scribes and everyone who was there listening, they were hearing a divine revelation of who Jesus is. And they were about to hear some divine wisdom being poured out on them in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Jesus displays his authority by revealing his divine wisdom powerfully here. He says to them, Which is easier to say to the paralytic... Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, this is a trick question. Both are impossible for man to do. Both of these things are impossible. I can't forgive your sins, and I can't make you well. I can't do that. Only God can do that. Both are equally impossible for mere men. But notice what he says. He says, which is easier to say which is easier to speak? Which is easier to declare? Well, Jesus knew the scribes would say that it's easier to state that sins were forgiven because there's no way to prove what happened within. Right? See, it's easy. I, I, I can say of any of you, I, I think your sins are forgiven. Nobody can tell if I'm telling the truth or not. That's easy to say. So... Jesus says, which one's easier, to say this or to say rise? Well, they're thinking in their hearts, rise. If he's, if, you know, if he's God, he can make him rise. He can make him well. But he's not doing that. He, he said he's forgiven. So he, he took the easy route. So Jesus says, okay, now I got you where I want you. He chooses to do the more difficult, to show them externally that he has the authority to transform this man internally. That's what he does. Both of these require divine authority. And it could only be done by God. So Jesus has them in a major theological trap at this point, and they can't get out of it. Notice his his trap is is amazing. Look what it says again in verse 9. He says, which one is easier? And then he, he gives this one that's declaring his sovereign authority, and the other one is his omnipotent mercy. Which one's easier for me to show? Great mercy toward a paralytic our great authority toward a sinner who needs forgiveness. His trap displays something about his nature. This trap displays Jesus' authority and it, inclu- it includes his mercy. In verse 10, Jesus uses an unmistakable revelation to display his mercy. Look what it says It says, That you may know, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he's going to say to him, Rise and walk, right? But notice what it says at the first. He says, that you may know, and the word here is epignisco, to know experientially, to have thorough knowledge. He says, so that you scribes, Pharisees, may actually experientially have knowledge that I am who I claim to be, the son of man. I'm going to show you my authority. His ekousia, his inherent authority. That word authority means his sovereign rule. It means the authority that is within himself. That you may know that the Son of Man has sovereign authority. I'm going to raise this man up to show you that I have forgiven him internally and I'm going to heal him externally so that you may know. Now, only Jesus can do this. We know that later on Jesus delegates his power to heal people and to cast out demons to his disciples. But there's one thing Jesus never delegates the forgiveness of sins there is no other mediator between god and man except the man christ jesus no priest no preacher he doesn't delegate that authority to anyone else but himself he gets all the glory for that here he's saying i am going to reveal to you that the son of man has sovereign rule i'm going to do that by raising this man up he says In verse 10, Jesus uses the title Son of Man. This is his favorite self-appointed title. He uses this title so they may know who he is. He does this, he uses this title to show he is humble and merciful. He uses a title that actually identifies himself with us as men. That's why I think he chose this title. This title is only used one time to refer to him being Messiah. That's in Daniel. Only once there. Everywhere else in the Old Testament that Son of Man is used, it just simply means man. He is saying, so that you know that I am the God man, that I am fully man, and I have full authority as God, I'm going to show you this. This was a term that referred to him being like us, understanding our needs, caring about our troubles. Look at Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Look at Psalm 144. We see this again. I think this is what Jesus is relating to. Psalm 144, 3 and 4. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. When when you read Mark chapter 2 in its context, and you understand that Jesus is coming to preach about the kingdom of God coming, and it's coming with him, he is saying in a very sympathetic way, that the Son of Man has sovereign authority and He cares for you personally. When you compi- combine the title Son of Man with this revelation, you learn that Jesus is a sympathetic sovereign. He cares about His glory primarily, but He also cares about our good and He cares for us. I think this is really important for us to understand. He is not just a sovereign king. He is a good and sovereign king who cares about his servants. In verses 10b through 12 there in Mark, Jesus reveals sovereign authority and omnipotent mercy. Just amazing when I read this and I see who it is that is declaring these things and who it is that is accomplishing these things and how he cares for us personally. And he uses uses his sovereignty to, to exalt his mercy and show us what kind of Savior we have. He says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I mean, look at the compassion here. He said to the paralytic, I'm going to show these guys who I am, For your good. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all. Jesus is showing us that he has authority to forgive our sins, and that he is almighty, and that he is powerful, and he is merciful to those he loves. I mean, what a, what a, again, what a, what a wonderful surprise. I would have been happy with the declaration of forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't stop there with His blessings to His people. He gives them grace upon grace. He even uses this confrontation to reveal His nature and do good to His people. He does that for you as well. When you go through conflicts, understand this. He is working in that. To bring about your good and his glory in it. I want you to think about for just a moment who it is that makes this declaration to this paralytic in Mark chapter 2. I want you to stop and think about the omnipotent mercy that is displayed in this text. I want you to think about this. Jesus, God, a very God, God the Son. The creator and sustainer of the universe becomes the son of man powerfully here. He shows us who he is. And this son of man is the one who created and sustained this universe. And he determined before creation to prove that he was divine by healing a man made from dust. That's what's going on here. This is no mere accident. This is not a happenstance. This is something that He has decreed from before the foundation of the world to display His authority and His mercy. He determined before creation to prove He was divine through this healing. Through healing a man made from dust. Do you see the the condescension, the mercy that the Creator exhibited to us by becoming like us and coming into the world to care for us? Church, think about what you're witnessing here. This same Jesus, before the foundation of the world, decided to exert his divine power, and so he spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. And he speaks to this man, and this man leaps under the creative word of Christ. This is incomprehensible for us. The infinite God-man, Jesus, The infinite God-man, dwelling in finite space, does the impossible for man to display his grace. To display not just authority, but his mercy, his compassion toward his creation. Think about this event in light of the reality. The reality of this world that we live in. Listen to this. We are all like specks of dust on this planet. This planet is like a speck of dust in our galaxy. Our galaxy is but a speck of dust in a massive universe that is filled with millions of other galaxies that appear to be specks of dust created by God. But God decided to display his glory on this speck of dust in your life. He decided how he would do it. He decided that He would display His glory on this speck of dust by becoming one of us. God the Son condescended and came willingly to this planet to display His authority, and He did it through mercy. He did it through the mercy that was exhibited on the cross of Calvary. There is how God brought us what we needed most. He brought us forgiveness at the cross at the cost of God the Son's own life. At the cross, He brought us forgiveness and He healed us of our greatest disease. Look at Psalm one hundred three, thirteen. This is a picture of what our God is like. Just let this weigh on your heart this morning and cause you to rejoice because He has exhibited His authority and mercy toward you. Verse 13, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more but... The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. The steadfast love is everlasting. And it was exhibited to us who are passing, who are temporal, through Jesus' condescension when he became like us. When I read this, when I read these passages like this about how God, I mean, again, the God of the universe how the God of the universe condescended to become like us, not just to show us He is massive and He is powerful, but to show us that He is full of loving kindness and mercy towards sinners by not only forgiving us, but for caring for us physically. That blows my mind. And actually, when you go back to Mark, when you go back to Mark at the very last of this, it says actually in the text 12b, They were amazed and glorified God. That word amazed actually means they were beside themselves. Beside themselves. It blew their minds. But when I read this, and in light of what I just said, I am really confused by the reaction that these people exhibit here. Let's see, Jesus just says, I have sovereign authority and I have omnipotent mercy. I healed a man and I forgave him of his sins. And what do they do? They don't repent. How do they react? We hear the crowds, right? We hear the crowds speak. And there is an unrepentant reaction to Jesus' revelation. This is evidence of man's pervasive depravity. They were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. They were amazed. They magnified God. But what was missing? In the face of the incarnate deity... They didn't fall down and cry out for mercy. They did not rejoice at the work of Jesus. They rejoiced at the good things that he gave them externally. There was no repentance, no trust in Jesus mentioned here. Matter of fact, Matthew 9 tells us that they really didn't believe Jesus' claim either. Look what it says in Matthew 9:8. When the crowds saw it, the same account... They were afraid. That's the word phobia. They were fearful. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They missed the point. Even in the, in the face of this great miracle, apart from God's grace and saving faith, they could not believe on their own. They were unchanged. They didn't give glory to the Son of God There is no trust. There is no repentance in their reaction. There is just amazement. They didn't trust in his revelation. The reason they didn't do that was because they were following Jesus for their temporal blessings. They were looking to Jesus to get them their stuff. They wanted a Savior only in the sense that he could help them get through their life. They weren't willing to submit to this one to acknowledge his authority and their need of his mercy. Could you you just imagine this? You just saw Jesus heal a man and claim that He forgave him of his sins and you don't repent and believe in Him? It's unthinkable. But they could only see Jesus through their natural eyes. They didn't see Him spiritually. And apart from God's grace, no man can see Jesus. No man can see His glorious work on the cross being imputed to them Unless God opens their eyes to see that. Look at Romans 8, Romans 8, 6 through 8. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. John 6, 63. Six sixty three 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But he says, There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65 says, And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. How did Peter know this? God revealed it to him. God drew him irresistibly to Jesus, causing him to believe and to know that Jesus had full authority on earth and was full of mercy towards sinners. Can you see that this morning? Do you see who Jesus is? If so, rejoice. Do you see that he is full deity? Do you see that he was God of very God who came into this earth to be your substitute. Do you believe that he has full authority? Are you submitted to him as your lord, as your master? Do you see and experience his mercy? If you do, rejoice. You can always check yourself to see if this is true. Are you responding to his commands? Are you repenting of your sin? Are you continually trusting in his life, his death, and his resurrection to grant you acceptance before God? Are you trusting in your works, in your religious participation? If you're rejoicing in Jesus' work, and you're continually repenting of your sin in light of your Savior's grace, you need to rejoice, because you can't do that on your own. With man, that is impossible. But with God, all things regarding salvation are possible. God himself, God the Father, drew us to God the Son for forgiveness. God the Holy Spirit now empowers us to obey Jesus, to obey his command, to rise up and display his authority in our lives and his mercy through our lives. Like the four men who took this man to Jesus, we should be giving evidence that we believe that this Jesus has the right to rule us and we should draw people to Him to see that He is our sovereign and He is good and can save us. Your evidence will display whether or not you've experienced His forgiveness. The evidence of His work will show up in your trust, in your repentance, and your obedience. So rejoice if that's the case this morning. Rejoice if your daily drawing upon Christ's work to be what you know brings you before God the Father as an accepted child of God, loved and forgiven. Rejoice in that, because God illuminated your eyes to see it. It wasn't because of your religious affiliation. It wasn't on your own good works that you saw this, on your own ability like these people here, the crowd. They they couldn't see it on their own. It was because God removed the blinders so that we would not just be amazed and glorified God for these great things he does for us temporally, like healing us, but so that we would actually see that Jesus has addressed our greatest need first. He has forgiven us, and he will care for us because his favor is on us because God loved us, not based on anything we did, but based on what Jesus did to make us his own. So let's rejoice in that this morning. Rejoice that He has authority and that He shows that authority through His mercy to you individually, personally. Rejoice that you can go tell others about His authority and His mercy this morning. Lord, we thank You today for Your revelation of Christ. We thank You for the reality of Your authority that reigns over all things and Your mercy that comes to us personally through Jesus. God, I pray that we would magnify that with our lives as we work out our salvation, as we cultivate the gift that you've given to us through faith and repentance. I pray that through that we can bring others to see the glorious gospel of Jesus. And I pray in his name, amen.
1: O sovereign God, O matchless King The saints adore, the angels sing And fall before the throne of grace To you belong the highest praise These sufferings, these passing times under your wings I will abide, and every in of me shall flee. You are my hope and victory. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, clothed in pine. Above all other names to the valley for my soul, thy great descent has made me whole your word, my heart has welcomed home, like peace, like water. The Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three and one, clothed in power and in grace, the name above all other names. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three and one, clothed power and embrace the name above all other names